My name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. And if you're a guest with us uh, this morning, I just want to give you a special shout-out. We're really glad that you're here, and I would love to meet you after the service and just get to hear a little bit more of your story. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 14 today, starting in verse 14. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And one of the things that has puzzled historians for years is why Christianity spread so fast in its earliest days. Why Christianity spread so fast in its earliest days. The group that Jesus left behind was uh, pretty small. They weren't very influential. Christianity didn't advance through conquest, and it didn't make its followers rich. In fact, for a lot of the followers, it made them less rich. It cost them prestige. It cost them their homes. It cost them their fortunes. And yet, in spite of this, Christianity produced communities of people unlike anything that the world had ever seen. These communities were peaceable. When they were persecuted, they didn't respond in anger, but they prayed for their persecutors. They welcomed the marginalized. They cared not only for those who were poor within their own communities, but the general poor of the cities that they were in. They formed the first multiracial communities on the planet. They taught that all people were of equal worth in the eyes of God. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, masters and servants, men and women. And without money or cultural influence or political power, these communities spread all across the known world. That's that's just historical fact. But the question is, how? How did these communities, without all the trappings that usually go along with a movement, power and influence and wealth, how did these communities of people spread all around the world? That's a question that Kenneth Latourette, a professor at Yale, wrote about. And he said this, The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. But before I am a historian, I am human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? The energy, the supernatural power that Latourette is referring to is what the Bible calls the gospel. The Bible refers to the gospel as the power of God. And the early Christians were transformed and empowered by understanding believing and working this gospel message into their lives at the heart level, by understanding it, by believing it, and then by allowing it to transform them from the inside out. It changed how they related to God, it changed how they related to one another, and it changed how they related to the world around them. It was the power, it was the energy that caused Christianity to spread from one room in Jerusalem to now every continent on the face of the planet. And what transformed them in the first century can transform you today. The same gospel message is just as powerful in 2019 as it was in the first century. If you want to be more patient, if you want to be less anxious, if you want a better marriage or you want to be less insecure, if you want to make wiser decisions or live with more purpose in life, 
then you should do what the earliest Christians did. You should strive to understand, believe, and work the gospel into your life at the very deepest level. Work the gospel into your heart. And this morning, I want to help you start that process. I want to help you start that process of transformation by looking at the very first Christian sermon ever preached. The very first Christian sermon ever preached recorded in Acts chapter 2. And in this text, we're going to learn two things. First, we're going to learn what the gospel is. And second, we're going to learn what the gospel does. Okay, so what the gospel is and then what the gospel does. So let me catch you up on what's happened so far in the book of Acts, if you haven't been with us, okay? After his crucifixion, Jesus was resurrected from the dead by God the Father. And he spent 40 days, 40 days, proving to his disciples that he really was alive. Then he ascended into heaven and told his followers, there were about 120 of them, to wait in Jerusalem until they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples gathered together in, the, in what you know, is the Bible equivalent of an Airbnb and waited. Okay, so it's serious. So they gathered together in an Airbnb and they waited and they prayed. And then 10 days later, on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost, the room they were in were, was filled with a mighty wind. And the disciples were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In response to this momentous event, they went out into the crowded marketplace, into the crowded temples, and they started to proclaim the glory of God in languages that were unknown to them. So they started to speak languages that they had never learned growing up as they did in Galilee. Now think of Pentecost, the, the celebration of Pentecost, kind of like a holy version of Mardi Gras, okay? You're like, whoa, holy version of Mardi Gras. There were thousands of people from all around the world that were in Jerusalem for this holiday that weren't usually there. And most of these people spoke different languages. So here's what happens. 120 people go out into the streets and into the temple, and they start proclaiming the mighty works of God. And all these people that are there from all over the world say, wait, they're speaking my native language, and they're speaking it fluently. And as you can imagine, this, this caused quite a stir. You remember those guys from Duck Dynasty? You remember those guys? It would sort of be like if one of those guys got up here and started speaking Mandarin. You'd be like, I don't know what's going on here, but it's not normal, right? Because the disciples were from a part of Israel called Galilee, and Galilee was known as being sort of a backwoods area where people don't talk real good, okay? Like, that's, that's what Galilee was. So all of a sudden, these people from Galilee are, are proclaiming the wondrous works of God in, I mean, fluent languages that they shouldn't know, and this caused a massive stir. And there were two responses in the crowd. One part of the crowd said, what's happening? I'm perplexed. I'm interested in this. And the other part of the crowd said, I know what's happening. They've had too much to drink. All right, they're probably just drunk. This really is like Mardi Gras, right? It's 9 a.m. and they're already drunk, okay? So that's the context for what Peter is going to do. And in verse 14, Peter is going to stand up and explain. He's going to interpret for people what's happening, okay? And first he starts by saying, if you look at your text, he starts by saying, hey, we aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m., okay? We aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. And then in verses 16 through 21, if you look at it in your Bible, he quotes from the prophet Joel, to show that this miracle was the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out his Holy Spirit when his Messiah had come. So Peter gets up and he interprets for the crowd. He says, no, we're not drunk. This is what's happening. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And, and this is God's sign that his Messiah has now come. This is a sign that as a result of the Messiah, this is really important, everyone, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, regardless of race, moral or immoral, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved from their sin and become a child of God. 
That's verse 21. You see that? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, the idea that anyone can be saved is a radical concept. It is a radical concept. Not just religious insiders, not just the educated, not just the wealthy or the powerful. But anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. People who have made mistakes, people who have regrets, and people who don't have their act together. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Even if this morning you are full of regret, even if you're not a religious person or you've neglected your faith for years, what Peter is saying is now, because of the work of Jesus, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Now, that is a bold statement. That is a bold statement. If you went and you made that statement somewhere in the Far East where uh, they practice Islam or they practice uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, they'd say, that's not true. Only the faithful can be saved. Only those who have their act together. Only those who practice the five pillars of Islam or those who practice the eightfold path. Only those will be saved. And Peter says, no, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, even if your life is a wreck. That is a bold statement to make. So what Peter is going to do is he's going to explain how that is possible. You can't just say something like that to a crowd. They'd be like, no, that's not true. We all know that's not true. We all know that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, don't they? And Peter says, ah, wrong. And he's going to explain that because of the work of Jesus, everything has changed. It changed then, and hear me, it has changed for us today. And Peter's going to say, because of the gospel, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And he's going to help us understand this through his two points. What the gospel is, you have to understand what it is, and then what the gospel does. So number one, this is our first point, what the gospel is. This is from verses 22 through 36. The word gospel in Greek literally means simply good news, good news. And it originally wasn't a religious word. It was simply a word that was used to announce glad tidings. So, for example, um, if a general was fighting a battle and won the battle, he would send a messenger to nearby towns with gospel, with good news that the battle had been won and now the towns were safe. What's interesting is that those messengers were called evangelists bears of good news. So the gospel wasn't some sort of religious word when it first started out, but here's the thing. The early Christians latched on to the word gospel because it beautifully communicates the message of Christianity. Hear me. Christianity is not primarily about what you need to do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the Roman general sent the messenger to the town proclaiming gospel, it was not an invitation to come join the battle. It was a declaration that the battle had already been won. So Peter is going to explain to us what the gospel is because to, for the gospel to really take root in your life and to transform you, for the power of the gospel to be released, you need to understand it. And Peter is going to give us what I would call are the ABCs of the gospel. There is more to the gospel than this, but unless you have these three things, you don't have the whole gospel, okay? The ABCs of the gospel are simply Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. So let's start with letter A, Jesus' life, verse 22. Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter started by talking about Jesus' life. He was from a real town called Nazareth, and he traveled around Israel 
preaching and performing what Peter called mighty works, wonders, and signs. Jesus healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He walked on water, and he miraculously multiplied food. Everyone knew that. It's why Peter said in the verse, as you yourselves know, Jesus was a big deal in his time. He had thousands of people following him around. Everybody knew who he was. Even people who didn't like Jesus admitted that he performed miraculous deeds. During his time on earth, Jesus' enemies couldn't deny that he did wondrous works, so they said that he did them by the power of Satan. They're like, all right, yeah, we admit that you did that, but you were, you were, use, you were using satanic power to do that. Um, even Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian who did not like Christians, when he was writing about the first century, he said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus was truly a doer of remarkable and strange works. Jesus lived a remarkable life. Everyone knew that. But what part does that play in our salvation? What part does that play in the gospel? Why does that matter? If you think about it practically, Jesus' life was pretty inefficient, wasn't it? I mean, he didn't start his public ministry until he was 30 years old. And we don't really know much about his life before then. Why spend so many years working as a carpenter in some small backwoods town in Israel? I mean, he is the son of God. I'm sure he had better things to do, right? Why spend 30 years in obscurity? The answer that, to that question becomes clear and apparent when we have a better understanding of what is required for our salvation. You see, most of the time we think that sin is our major problem, don't we? We think that the bad things that we've done or the bad things that we've fought or the regrets that we have, that that is what separates us from God. And, that, and that's true, but we actually don't understand how heaven works if, that, if we think that's our only problem. If, if we think that all we need is to be free of sin to get into heaven, we don't quite understand it. Think of it this way. Imagine you applied to UVA and you got rejected. Right, me? Um, <laughs> Right? You were incensed. You were just like so mad. And so you set up a meeting with the admissions officer to find out why you got rejected. This is not a personal story, okay? Um, and when the meeting started, you said, hey, can you explain to me why I wasn't admitted uh, to UVA? As I clearly stated on my application, I've never been convicted of a crime, and I graduated from high school. Right? Well, the admissions officer would respond, that's true, but your GPA and SAT scores are mediocre. I'm sorry, but you don't meet our admission standards, right? UVA is a prestigious university. So to be accepted, you not only need to be free of major defects, right? It's not only like, oh, great, you, you don't have a criminal record, welcome. You also have to be able to present a pristine resume of achievement, right? You see what I'm driving at here? Do you think UVA has higher admission standards than heaven? No, of course not. So if we're going to get accepted into heaven, it's not just that we need to be cleansed of any major crimes. We also need, I mean, a completely perfect resume. We need the most pristine resume of righteousness that you can ever imagine. It's not just enough to not do bad things. We need to be filled up with perfection and with righteousness in every single sense. But the problem, the problem, of course, is that none of us have that, right? None of us have a resume full of perfect righteousness. Even on my best days, I sin. Even in my greatest moments, I make mistakes. So where can you and I find the righteousness that is required to be accepted into heaven? Is there any hope for any of us? Because we would say, right, well, nobody's perfect. And all of a sudden, you understand why Jesus' life mattered so much. You see, Jesus spent 33 years on earth living the perfect life that we should have lived. 
Jesus built the perfect resume of righteousness in every single sense so that he could offer it to us. Have you ever wondered why he waited until he was 30 to start his ministry? I mean, certainly he was ready at 18, right? Probably like the most mature 18-year-old you've ever met. Why 30? Well, in Jewish culture, when you, when you made it to 30, you would reach the last stage of development. You would become an adult. You were eligible to be an elder in the community. So what that means is that Jesus lived every potential life stage perfectly in your place. He was the perfect kid. He was the perfect teenager. He was the perfect young professional. Right? He was the perfect son. He was the perfect brother. He was the perfect cousin. He was the perfect worker. He was the perfect neighbor. He was the perfect member of the community. In every way that you and I have failed, Jesus succeeded. Do you have a phase of your life that you look back on with regret? Maybe a season where you just, man, you put your faith on the shelf, you walked away from God, maybe you just made a lot of bad decisions. I know I do. Mine was my senior year of high school. It's for a lot of reasons. I just kind of went off the rails. And I look back on that time with like a lot of grief and a lot of regret at some of the things that I did. Maybe for you it was college. Maybe you just kind of left your faith behind in college, went, went kind of crazy. Maybe it was a season in your marriage when just everything hit the fan. Maybe it's right now. I mean, maybe you've kind of, you've just been, you don't know what you think about God, but things just haven't been going well, so you're here to see maybe this will help. The good news is that in every single way that we've failed in some stage of our life, Jesus lived perfectly. And your hope and my hope and our resume is not based off of our actions, but it's based off of the actions of Christ. Jesus had a perfect senior year of high school. Right, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> he had a perfect senior year of high school. He had a perfect college experience. He had a, he was, he's the, the perfect spouse. And that is hope for all of us that, that have not been those things. Jesus offers you and he offers me his perfect resume of righteousness in exchange for your spoiled one. To put it simply, letter A of the gospel is this. You ready? Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. The perfect resume that we need to get into heaven is available to us because of Jesus' perfect life. That is letter A of the gospel. Which brings us to letter B. Jesus' death. This is verse 23. This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So after pointing out that Jesus lived a perfect life, Peter says, oh yeah, then you plotted with the Romans to kill him. This Jesus, who everybody knows was a remarkable man, who was perfect in every way, you plotted to crucify him. And that was true for some of the people in this audience. That was, I mean, they had actively or inactively taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. That wasn't literally true for a lot of them. Again, there were thousands of people in town for Pentecost that hadn't been there when Jesus was crucified. So how could Peter possibly say to them, you crucified him. You took part in the plot. You murdered the Son of God. How could he say that? What has everything to do with a pretty surprising phrase in verse 23? Look back, look back at it with me. He said this, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So yes, Jesus was killed by lawless men, but only because it was the plan of God for it to happen. So just Peter is saying that God the Father planned the death of his perfect son. 
Let that sink in for a minute. God the Father planned the death of his perfect son. He didn't just let it happen. He planned for it to happen. Now, good fathers lay down their lives for their kids. They just do. When I'm walking on the sidewalk, I always have the kids walk on the inside of me. So if a truck jumps the curb, it hits me and not them. Right? Good fathers lay down their life for their kids. And yet, Peter is telling us in a shocking way that God not only allowed his son to die, but he planned for it and caused it to happen. What in the world could lead God, the perfect father, to do that? What kind of motivation existed for God to plan the death of his own son? You and me. You and me. It was God's love for you. It was God's love for me and his desire to save us from our sins that led him to plan the death of his perfect son. You see, God can't just wink at sin and act like it's no big deal. If he did, injustice and wickedness would reign. There would be no true justice in the world, and he wouldn't be worthy of worship. I mean, what would you think of a judge that just continually left perpetrators go? Like, oh, yeah, you, you assaulted that person? That's okay. You didn't really mean it. Just go ahead. Oh, you stole that person's car? Oh, no big deal. I'm sure you won't do it again. No, you'd say that's a bad judge. That's an unjust judge. He shouldn't be allowed to practice. Well, if God just winked at sin, if he just acted like it was no big deal, he would be an unjust judge. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. He has to punish sin. But we're full of sin. And he loves us, which puts God in a dilemma. He loves us, he wants to save us, but he has to punish sin because he's holy and he's the judge of all the earth. That dilemma was solved in the death of Jesus. That dilemma was solved in the death of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus died the way that he did? Right? Why, did, why such a gruesome execution? Why couldn't Jesus just have kind of died in his sleep surrounded by his disciples? Because on the cross, Jesus was suffering the punishment that our sins deserve. Sin is serious. It's a wicked rejection of God's rightful rule in our lives. It brings devastation into our lives and into the, the lives of people around us. It leads us to manipulate and use people that God has called us to love. So hear me, the punishment had to fit the crime. The punishment had to fit the crime. Jesus had to die in a gruesome, painful way to pay the penalty of our sin. So to go back to my earlier question, how is it that Peter could say to this whole crowd, you crucified Jesus even though they weren't there? Because in a very real sense, it was their sin that had made the crucifixion of Jesus necessary. They might not have plotted Jesus' death, but they were the ones who had made it necessary. And in that sense, you and I crucified Jesus too. It was your sin, it was my sin that made it necessary for Jesus to die. There's a song we sing here called How Deep the Father's Love for Us that I think expresses this really well. It says, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Look, Jesus didn't die because he had to. Jesus died because he chose to, to pay the penalty of our sins to give us hope. Letter B of the gospel, 
is this. Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. Jesus died the death that you deserved to die. He paid the penalty of the sins that we've committed. Which brings us to letter C, Jesus' resurrection, the last of what the gospel is, verses 24 through 35. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So there have been religious gurus throughout history that have built large followings, right? I mean, you can find them today. All kinds of people have claimed crazy things. People have claimed that they are gods or that they're the son of God. Anybody can say, I could stand up here and say that right now. But no other religious guru in history has ever defeated death. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Gandhi is dead. Every other great religious leader throughout history has taught profound things and has built a large following, but then has died, except for Jesus Christ. You see, truly the resurrection is the crux of Christianity because if it really happened, if Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, it validates that he is the son of God. It validates letter A and letter B of the gospel, that his life was perfect and that he really has paid for your sin and that through, through repentance and faith in him, you really can be forgiven. If Jesus resurrected from the dead, it means that God has accepted his sacrifice for your sins. The resurrection is the crux of it all. If the resurrection happened, if you really think it happened, you must reorient your entire life around Jesus. If there is really someone who died and three days later was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven and is going to come back one day in glory to judge the earth, you better start thinking about it. But if not, if Jesus didn't really resurrect from the dead, then just throw the whole thing out. He's just a religious lunatic, right? Just like many other religious lunatics throughout history. Peter understood that the resurrection was the crux of the Christian message, so he spends eight verses defending it, okay? He spends way more time on this than he did on the first two. And first, he defends the resurrection by quoting from the Old Testament, and he shows that even the Old Testament saints anticipated the resurrection. This is from Psalm 16. This is what he quotes. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That phrase Holy One is capitalized because it referred specifically to a, to a role, to an office, to a person. To God's holy anointed one. What the New Testament translates as Christ. As Christ. In Psalm 16, David is saying that God would not allow his Christ to die. That God would not allow his Christ to see corruption, but that he would resurrect him from the dead. So as far back as David, the Old Testament saints had been looking forward to a resurrection. In fact, they knew that if the resurrection happened it would confirm that this really was the Messiah. It wasn't just some lunatic. It really was the anointed one. So Peter is saying, look, I didn't just make this up. We didn't just come up with this in a vacuum. This has been, this has been promised for hundreds of years, and now it has come to pass. And what's fascinating is that then Peter anticipates an objection. He anticipates an objection. He says, well, what if David was just talking about himself? Right? Because if you look at Psalm 16, sometimes it seems like David is referring to himself, and sometimes it seems like he's referring to someone else. So Peter dialogues with that objection in verses 29 and 30. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. Being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says David couldn't have been talking about himself because David died, he was buried, and oh, you can go visit his tomb, it's here in Jerusalem. But as a prophet, David was looking forward to the time that God would resurrect his promised Messiah. So first, Peter defends his statement about the resurrection by appealing to the Old Testament. Second, he defends it by appealing to his eyewitness testimony. He says this in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Remember, after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, convincing them that he was alive. They saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they ate with Jesus, they even touched the scars in his hands. This group of 120 was able to provide objective evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Objective evidence of Jesus' resurrection. So Peter says, in summary, what the Old Testament saints anticipated, we have experienced and bear witness to. What the Old Testament saints anticipated, we have experienced and bear witness to. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and that validates everything that he said and everything that he did. And Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 33 through 35 to quote another Old Testament verse from David in the Psalms as well to show that, man, God had promised that he was going to do this. And he says, now Jesus has not only been resurrected, but he's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And at that position, God has given him authority to pour out the Holy Spirit. And Peter wraps this whole thing up and says, that is what you're hearing. That is what you are seed and hearing. This crazy outpouring of man, languages that you don't understand, it's because Jesus is alive, he's exalted next to the throne of God, and he's poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. And then in verse 36, as all good pastors and preachers do, man, Peter wraps up his sermon in a poignant way. He says this, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here is the gospel. Here are the ABCs of the gospel. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. Jesus died the death you deserve to die. Jesus was then resurrected from the dead in victory. It is understanding, believing, and pressing into that message that transformed Peter that transformed the early disciples, that transformed the Roman Empire, that can transform you today. But it doesn't happen automatically. Simply by understanding the facts of the gospel, simply by hearing me tell you the facts of the gospel and preach the Bible, it won't automatically change you. It won't automatically transform you because you are called to respond. You are called to respond. When you hear the gospel preached, if you really believe it, you will want to respond, and that's exactly what the people did in verse 37. And that's the second thing that we learned. Point number two, what the gospel does. We learned what the gospel is. Point number two, what the gospel does. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I want to show you two things the gospel did in this crowd and two things that the gospel should do in you this morning. You ready? The gospel cuts to the heart and the gospel calls for a response. The gospel cuts to the heart, and the gospel calls for a response. Verse 37, now when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That phrase, cut to the heart, means to experience acute pain of a physical or emotional nature. 
And whenever the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed, we should be cut to the heart by two things. First, our sin, and second, God's love. Our sin and God's love should move us. And if it isn't moving you, you probably haven't really understood the gospel or believed it. First, our sin. Jesus didn't die for his actions. He didn't die for his choices. He didn't die for his sins. He died for yours. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was our self-centered decisions. It was your judgmental eye rolls. It was our pettiness, our lack of forgiveness, our gossip and slander at work, our sexual immorality that held him on the cross. It wasn't the nails. He's the son of God. He could have popped them off. He hung on the cross because of the decisions that you and I have made. And when you recognize that, it should cut you to the heart. That the son of God, the glorious one, was brutalized and was murdered because of what you and I have done. When you are cut to the heart by the gospel, when you are cut to the heart by the reality of sin, it will change how you think about sin. You will no longer take sin lightly. You will no longer think of, think of sin as something that you love to do and you can't wait to get home and do. You will hate sin. And you will give your whole life to putting sin to death because you don't want to dishonor the Lord who died for you. Look, if you take sin lightly, if it's silly, if you don't think it's a big deal in your life, I'm not sure you've really experienced the gospel. If you don't care at all about holiness, if you have whole areas of your life that you're just like, God, you can't have this, I'm holding on to this, I'm very, I don't know if you've experienced the gospel. I don't know if you've been cut to the heart like this group was cut to the heart. Because when you've been cut to the heart by the fact that your sin put Jesus Christ on the cross, you can't keep sinning like it's no big deal. When you're cut to the heart, it changes you. It changed this group of Christians. That's why people were so blown away by their holiness. It's not that they were different than us. It's just that they were really cut to the heart by what Jesus had done for them. When you really understand the gospel, it cuts you. Sin becomes painful. It grieves you. You weep over it. You hate it. You don't want it in your life. It's the first thing the gospel does. The second thing the gospel does is it cuts you to the heart with God's love. With God's Love. Remember that all of this happened. All of this happened according to the plan of God. How deep and steadfast must God's love be for you that he sacrificed his only son to get you back? How extraordinary must God's love and commitment to you be? We often say that you know how much you value something by how much you're willing to give up to, to keep it. Look, I love my family dearly. If, if my son James was diagnosed with a life-threatening disease and he had to have an expensive procedure to get it done, I would sell literally everything I own to get him that procedure. I would sell my house, I would sell our cars, I would sell our furniture. I would go into the debt for the rest of my life if it meant saving my son with no questions asked because that's how valuable he is to me. I'm willing to give up everything to save him. So what does that mean about how much God loves you? that he was willing to give up not a house and not cars and not money. He was willing to give up his one and only son, God the Son, whom he had dwelt in perfect community with from before ages past. And he was willing to see his son crucified and brutalized and humiliated and spit on so that you could be saved. What manner of love is this? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, 
that he would give his only son to make a wretch, you and me, his treasure. The truth is, all we've ever done is spurn God. It's true. All we've ever done is spurn God. And all God has ever done is love us in return. It reminds me of a scene from the Lord of the Rings. I'm a big kind of Lord of the Rings fan, so yes, I'm a nerd. Um, the two main characters in Lord of the Rings are uh, Frodo and Sam, okay? And Frodo and Sam uh, are on this journey. Frodo has been entrusted with this evil ring, and he has to go to this dark land to destroy this ring. And the fate of the entire free world rests upon Frodo's ability to do this. Well, after about 700 pages, or six hours if you're watching the movie, <laughs> um, they fi- Sam and Frodo finally get to this dark land. I mean, it has been a long journey, a lot of peril, a lot of hours. It's been really, really hard. And, and to get into this dark land, they have to climb this really, really dangerous set of steps that goes up the side of this mountain, and then they have to go through the layer of this gigantic spider, right? And uh, at this point, they're just exhausted, they're discouraged, it seems like there's no hope, and finally, if you've seen the movie, the power of the ring overtakes Frodo. The evil of the ring overtakes him, and Frodo becomes suspicious of Sam. And he thinks Sam wants to steal the ring from him. And so he just loses it on Sam. And he says, Sam, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't trust you. You're going to take from me. Just go away. Right? And Frodo marches up the steps. And Sam starts crying. And Sam starts marching down the steps. And then I, and I think this is the most powerful scene in the entire movie. Not the war scenes. I think this is the most powerful scene. Sam stops. And Sam turns around, and Sam climbs up the steps, and he ends up saving Frodo's life. Frodo spurned him. Frodo spat in his face. He was ungrateful of him. He said, go away. I don't want you. I don't trust you. And Sam went right back. Because Sam loved him. So even though he treated him like trash, he still went back. Friends, that is you and me with God. All God has ever done is bless us and give us life and give us pleasure and give us joy. And yet, we act like he wants to hold things from us. We're suspicious of God, like you want to take my joy. You want to take from me. And so we stiff arm God and we spurn his commands and we neglect his word and we question him. We say, I don't need you. I don't want you. Leave me alone. And we march off towards our destruction towards our condemnation, towards our death. And God said, okay, I'm going to send my son to the earth. You won't receive my word, so I'll just, I'll come put flesh on, and I'll march up the steps after you, and I won't protect you from danger. I'll walk into danger, and I will die instead of you so that you can be forgiven. How about that? Will that change your heart? Will that convince you that I'm not trying to take from you? I'm not against you, but I love you. What else can I do? What else can God give us? When you understand the gospel, it should cut you deeply with the love of God. And it will transform you. And you will say, what kind of love is this? That God would come after me again and again and again when all I do is stiff arm him. You say, this is the love of a glorious God, a God that deserves my whole life. My all, not 90 minutes on Sunday morning, but everything that I am. Look, I don't need to be insecure anymore because I have the love and approval of God Almighty. I don't need to be anxious anymore because if God gave up Christ for me, he's certainly going to provide for me. Look, I don't need to manipulate people to try to get what I want because I can trust that God's going to give me all that I need. 
I don't need the approval of another boy. I don't need the approval of another promotion. I have the approval of the only thing that really matters, which is the God of all the universe. He proved that once and for all in sending Jesus. When you understand the gospel, it cuts you. It cuts you. It causes tears to well up in your eyes, and you just want to proclaim with your mouth, worthy is the lamb that was slain. It's why we sing the songs that we sing. The songs we sing are not about you, and they're not about me and how great we are. They're about Jesus. We say, behold the lamb. Behold the one that would do this for us. When you really experience the gospel, it cuts you to the heart, and it changes you. And it leads you to ask the question that this crowd asked. Ready? Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What response should we make? And Peter tells us, this is letter B, the gospel calls for a response. Look at verse 38 with me. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41 reads, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. When the people asked Peter, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, and 3,000 of them did. The word repentance in Greek means a change of mind. means a change of mind. In this setting... It means in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you should change your mind and your attitude toward God. It means you recognize that God should be the weightiest thing in your life, your first priority, the Lord of everything. I think of it like the Copernican Revolution. Do you know who Copernicus was? So he was an astronomer in the 1500s. And before him, all astronomers believed that the earth was the center of the solar system and that everything revolved around the earth. But Copernicus discovered that the sun was the center of the solar system and that everything revolved around the sun. This this changed everything. All of a sudden, problems that astronomers couldn't solve with tracking the stars made sense. So many problems were solved. So much enlightenment came when they realized, oh, the earth isn't the center. The sun is the center. To repent, friend, means to have a Copernican revolution of your soul. To admit that you have been living like you are the center of the universe. That everything revolves around you, even your relationship with God. You've been living like everything revolves around you and you're the center. But that's wrong. You didn't create it all. You don't sustain yourself. You're not the one who is worthy of praise. He is. To repent means to admit that's wrong. And to change. And to say, God, I'm changing my attitude about you. I'm changing my posture towards you. It's no longer about me. It's about you. I'm no longer the boss of my life. I'm not the Lord. You are. I'm repenting, Jesus. I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm giving you the keys of my life. If you make that kind of change, it's going to have implications. It's going to change how you think about relationships. It's going to change how you think about money. It's going to change how you think about morality. It's going to change how you think about the church. And it was repentance, it was repentance that was what was so unique about the early Christians. They had issues, they had problems, they had proclivities just like us. 
but they were committed to repenting. They were committed to saying, I'm a Jew and I've been a racist my whole life against Gentiles, but I'm realizing that's not right. So I'm going to repent of my racism. And I'm going to build relationships with people of different races and ethnicities than me. They said, I've always believed that rich people are rich because they worked hard and poor people are poor because they haven't worked hard. But now I'm realizing that's not right. So I'm going to repent. And rather than be greedy and gather all the money that I can, I'm going to use my resources to help the poor and the marginalized. Rather than assuming that because I'm a man and I'm strong and I have position in, in society, I can just, I can push down women and treat them with contempt. No, I'm going to repent. I'm going to say, that's not, that's not what God teaches me in his word. He teaches me that we are created with equal value and worth. And I should love and care for my sisters in Christ. And I should encourage them and build them up. The early church became radically different than society because they practiced repentance. Because they didn't just hear the words of the gospel, but they did something with the words of the gospel and it changed the world. It changed the world because it changed them. God wants to do that in your life this morning. This morning, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much junk you have. God can radically transform your life in a moment. Because it's not about you. It's not about what you need to do. It's about what Jesus has already accomplished. And baptism is the public expression of that repentance. Do you understand that? Baptism is simply a symbol of repentance. When you go down into the waters of baptism, that symbolizes you are dying to being the Lord of your life. And when you come back up, it means you are being raised in Christ and he's now the Lord. Peter preached the gospel. The crowd was cut to the heart and 3,000 of them repented and then symbolized that through baptism. Here's, here's the significant question for us today. Have you responded in that way? Have you responded to the gospel in the way that that crowd did? Have you given your life to Jesus? Is he the Lord? Have you crossed the line of faith from being condemned in your sins to being saved by the blood of Christ? If you have, have you been baptized? Have you demonstrated that publicly by being baptized? Or if this happened for you, if you are a believer, are there areas of your life that you're stiff-arming Jesus and you're saying, you can't have this. I'm holding on to this over here. No, I can't trust you with this. Friend, what can't you trust Jesus with? What can't you trust Jesus with? He left heaven, he came to earth, he lived, he died, he resurrected for you. What can't you trust him with? I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to reflect. I invite you to bow your heads at this time. I just wanna give you three questions. Three questions to ask, they're gonna be on the screen behind me. First, have you repented and asked Jesus to forgive you and become your Lord? Have you ever truly given the keys of your life to him? If you have, are there areas that you're stiff-arming God? That you're making unavailable to him? They're, they're off-limits? Have you publicly symbolized your repentance through baptism? I just want to give you a minute. Just ask the Holy Spirit to help you honestly answer those questions.
with every head still bowed, I just want to invite you to respond this morning. If you've never repented and placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. You could vocalize that by praying a simple prayer, something like this. God, I confess that I'm a sinner, but I'm turning from my sin and placing my trust and my life in Jesus' hands. You're the Lord now, not me. If you need to pray that, do it right now. Don't wait another minute. The offer is in front of you. Be reconciled to God. Now, with heads, heads bowed, eyes still closed, I'm going to ask you to do something a little uncomfortable. If you prayed this morning to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand as a demonstration that, that he's the Lord now. I'm going all in with him. Go ahead and raise him now. Praise God. I'm just going to ask you after the service, come and talk to me, come and talk to Justin, one of our staff. If you want to hear your story, we want to help you walk with Christ. And if you've never been baptized, if, if you've never publicly symbolized your faith, through baptism. We want to help you take that stuff as well. Next weekend at our service, we're going to be baptizing. We'll have everything you need, all the clothes, all the stuff. It won't be weird. And so if you need to be baptized, come and talk to one of us down front. Tell us your story. We want to meet with you. We want to celebrate with you. We want to help you take that step. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us with such a deep, steadfast love. Lord, would you give us courage this morning to turn from our sin and to trust you with our lives. Help us to take the next step that you are leading us to take. We know you are trustworthy. We know you are true. You've shown us that in the gospel. Help us to believe.